passage today is Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Right, if we were done, we create a world and we have given this gracious gift to our people where we said, we want you to have a unique role in this creation, we want you to have a unique relationship with us in our creation, and then those people broke that relationship and refused to fulfill that role, but instead I said that they wanted to be like us, we would smite them. Right, we would crush them. There's no way we would give them a chance to enter back into that role and relationship with us. Because that's who we are. But God is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And because of who he is, thankfully, he does things differently. His plan for putting down our for killing the one who has the power over death is to send his son into the world to be made like us to die in our place. That's exactly what happens. It says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He's already told us that this has been perfected. He's already told us that Jesus brought this to completion. He's done it. He's done this work. He's accomplished these things. Now Hebrews is just telling us about it. He's telling us about the things that Jesus' death on our behalf has done. The first thing is that he destroyed the one who had the power over death. That's the devil. When we look at Scripture, we see both that that has happened and that it hasn't happened. Right? The book of Revelation tells us about the day in which Jesus is going to come back and Satan is going to be finally and fully thrown down into hell, and he will not rise again from there. But now we're in this place, it's kind of already not yet, where Satan has been overthrown, yet he still exercises some power in the world. We see this in the Gospels. Right? When Jesus comes on the scene, in Matthew 4, he starts preaching the Gospel. He tells people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he starts working miracles. He heals people. He casts out demons. He does all these miraculous works. And what we see him doing there is he's bringing the kingdom of God down here. He's taking back territory in his creation for the kingdom of God. That's why when he casts out demons in Matthew 9, the Pharisees come and they challenge him. They say, you cast out demons by the prince of demons. Jesus responds, that's not what he's doing. 
He's casting out demons by the Spirit of God. And he says, if that's the case, if that's really what he's doing, then the kingdom of God has come upon them. He's saying that his miraculous works, his healing, his demon casting out, everything that he's doing in the world, what, what they're seeing is evidence that the kingdom of God has actually come here. He is making the world like it was always supposed to be. And we see that in pockets throughout the Gospels. He's taking back power from the enemy. He's binding up the strong man so that his kingdom can come in its fullness. So he's destroyed the power of the devil. And yet we still see the devil fighting. But the victory has already been won. It's, it's finished. It's been. The second thing that we see here that his death accomplishes is in verse 15. He destroys the woman with the power of death, and he delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Here we need to notice the reversal of what we talked about last week. Last week we talked about what human beings were meant for in the world. We were created to flourish, to fulfill this role that God had given us. And this role is a role of dominion. God created us, he said, let them have dominion over all of it. We rule under his rule. That's what we were made for. But Adam and Eve us, if we were there, that wasn't enough. They wanted more. They wanted to be made like him. So because of that, they reached out, they took the fruit, they ate it, even though he told them not to. And when that happens, sin and corruption and death enters into humanity, and it's there throughout the rest of Scripture until the very end when it's done. So there's these people that God made to have this unique role and unique relationship with him who should have had dominion over everything, but instead they find themselves, we find ourselves subject to slavery because of death. And Jesus' death overturns all of that. He removes us out from underneath our slavery to sin and death. He frees us, not just from the penalty that we owe, we'll talk about that in a bit, but also from its power over us. Because of that, because of who we are as his people, because of sons and daughters of God, this means that we can now fulfill the role in God's creation that he made us for. Not perfectly, but we can be who he created us to be. We already are. He has made us. We talked about this last week. He's made us sons and daughters again. That's not something we're striving for. That's a reality that we live in. And because of that, we can start to fulfill this role he's made us, because he's bought us out from underneath this slavery, the death, and the sin. He explains this a little further in verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps. We've been talking in Hebrews since early in chapter 1 about the greatness of Jesus compared to angels. Last week we talked about how even humanity is better than angels in the sense that we have this unique role and relationship in his creation. And here we find out another reason why. Because even though the angels fell, they don't get offered the redemption that we get. It's not for them. He doesn't help them. He helps us. Specifically, Hebrews tells us he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now what the heck does that mean? I'm a child of Bob. I'm guessing that there aren't a lot of people here whose dad's name is Abraham. 
Anybody? All right, so we're all in the same boat. Who are the children of Abraham? In the Old Testament, right, we talked about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Adam falls, then corruption enters the human race, and people get worse and worse and worse and worse until you see these kind of two lines of people diverge. When you see the children of Adam who are still trying to be the people God made them to be in their creation, in his creation, but they fall, they continue to sin. But then there's this other line that goes from the children of Cain who get worse and worse and worse till we get to this guy named Lamech who is bragging and boasting uh, in poetry about how horrible it is. And when it gets to that point, is when the flood happens. God steps in and he sees his people are just rampant in wickedness. But there's one guy who's trying to be righteous, who's trying to be uh, the person God's called him to be and fulfill that role that he has in his creation. So God remakes the world with a flood. He destroys everything except for this one family. Immediately after the flood, we see that sin is still present. It still holds sway over everyone in God's creation. It keeps happening and keeps happening until we get to Genesis 11 when the people build the Tower of Babel. Right? They're trying to raise up this tower for themselves to make a name for themselves so they can reach up to where God is. God comes in, he confuses their languages, he ruins the plan for them. And then in the very next chapter, he comes into the scene, he calls this man named Abraham. And in contrast to what we see in the Tower of Babel story, he says that he's going to make a name for Abraham. He's going to take this one family, and through this one family, he's going to bless all the nations of the world. He starts to carry out this plan of redemption that develops the rest of the Old Testament and reaches its fulfillment in Jesus in the New Testament through the family of Abraham. So the children of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, are a huge part of the biblical storyline. In the Old Testament, it's this one family that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But when we get to the New Testament, things change. Thankfully for us. In Galatians, Paul tells us that it's those who have faith in Christ who are children of Abraham. No longer are the people of God defined by genetic lines, but by spiritual lines, by faith. And so anyone, whether you're a child of Steve or Phil or Bob, if you place your faith in Christ, you are a child of Abraham. That means that all the promises that God made to Abraham, he makes to us in Christ. Because Christ is a child of Abraham, and we're in Christ. That means, because of what Christ has done for us, not only do we get all the promises that God made to Abraham, but we also get the role that God gave to Abraham. He wants us to be a blessing to all nations. He wants to bless other people through us. Not financially, but maybe. He wants to use us to spread his story of redemption across the face of the world. It's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He helps those who place their faith and their trust in him. But how does this happen? Right? How does he destroy death? How does he deliver us? How does he help the offspring of Abraham? Verse 17. Therefore, he has Jesus. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
there are three things we need to notice about this verse. The first is that he had to be made like us in every respect. This is a necessary thing. In order for him to be our Redeemer, in order for the, the Son of God to make us sons of God, he had to become man. He had to be made like us in every respect. If he wasn't human, then his death doesn't count for ours. His payment of the penalty isn't our payment. He had to be made like us in every way so that he could stand in our place and die our death and bear our penalty. This had to happen. This is why Christmas matters. Because if he wasn't made like us, if he didn't take on flesh, then his death doesn't count for us. He had to be made like us in every respect. He wasn't partially human. He wasn't mostly human. He was fully human. He was human like you and I are human. He's made like us in every way. Hebrews 4 later is going to clarify that he's made like us in every respect, but he was without sin. That's the one way his humanity is different than ours, is that he doesn't give it the same way. Second and third things we see in this verse is that he's both our high priest and our sacrifice. Because he's like us in every respect, he can be a merciful and faithful high priest. He can be someone who we can relate to, who can spiritually guide us and help us and speak the word of God to us. He's also not just a high priest who offers a sacrifice. He's a high priest who offers himself as a sacrifice. You see this in the very end of verse 17 where he says that he made propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a fancy word that means uh, it kind of conveys both the idea of the forgiveness of sins and an appeasement or a satisfaction of wrath. And I know that's not the way we like to think about God as being this vengeful or wrathful or angry God. But God is holy, perfectly holy, and because of that, he cannot abide sin. He can't let evil go unpunished. There must be a payment made for sin. And that's what this word means means that Jesus stood in our place. And the reason why we have the opportunity to have our sins forgiven is because he paid the penalty for our sins. And by penalty, I mean he received God's wrath against us and our sin. For everyone that trusts him. That's why he had to die. Because there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding. He's our high priest, uh, and that he spiritually guides us. And we see this in Lord verse 18, and it's going to come up again and again in Hebrews. Up to this point in the passage, we've been talking mostly about the benefits of his death. I think we should think more about those in the present than we do, but I think mostly when we think about those, we think about them in the past. My sins were forgiven when I trusted in Christ, but I'm still benefit from them if we do. I think even more important than that, we overlook how we benefit from his human life that he lived on this earth. Look at verse 18. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is one of the ways he functions as our high priest. He can help us when we're being tempted. When we think about Christ's suffering, when we see the word suffering in relationship to Jesus in the, in the Bible, when we see those things in Scripture, maybe most often think only about his death. He suffered on the cross, and he absolutely did. But I think one thing we should recognize is that he also suffered the rest of his life. Because he left heaven. He was in glory with his Father. He was all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, just chilling up in heaven, doing whatever he wanted. Because he's God. That's what he can do. And he leaves all of that to take on flesh and come down here and be a baby. He became dependent. If Mary doesn't feed him, he dies. If his parents don't care for him, he dies. He allowed himself to be limited. I don't mean he became less divine. He absolutely did not become less divine. But he wasn't everywhere at once. Didn't bust out, do you know, all powerful things when he's playing with his friends after school. When he's in the gospels and we see him in the presence of sin, in his grace and mercy, he forbears all of it. He suffered his whole life because he's a human, and he knew how much better things could be than they are. And because of that, because he's suffered, because he's been tempted, he's able to help us. I think that this reality should cause us to pray more. Because think about how much more he suffered temptation than I did or you do. Satan doesn't really have that much trouble with us. And we like to think we've grown a lot, and we probably have, but still, Satan comes to us and he's like, hey, get angry. Okay, that situation was bad enough that I'm getting, or you know, do this thing or do that. Satan needs maybe a handful of tricks to get us to fall, and he uses the same ones over and over and over and over and over again in our lives. But Jesus never fell, so we might think, "Oh, he doesn't really understand my temptation." He doesn't understand my struggle. It's, it's worse than anything he went through. No, he went through it all because he never gave in. And so it got worse and 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 more tempting and more tempting and more tempting and he never gave in. He knows more about the power of temptation than we will ever know because it never exhausted. And so because of that, he absolutely can help us in our temptation because ours is light and fluffy compared to his. He knows what we're dealing with. He understands what it's like to live and fall alone. He lived in it. And so no matter what we're struggling with, whether it's temptation, whether it's sin, whether it's the loss of a loved one, whether it's how to you know, live with a disobedient child, or whether it's you know, how to maintain a friendship that's really tricky or hard, how it's to be around people you don't like. No matter what it is, Jesus went through those situations on this earth. 
If you get punched by his brother, if you get treated poorly by people in his community, if you get disciplined and angered by his parents, he went through life in this fallen world as a human being. That should encourage us. This verse absolutely removes any ground we might think that we have that God has no idea what we're doing. But we can't bring it to him. This should also give us more hope and confidence in our fight against sin. Jesus has been there. He knows the way out. Scripture tells us that no temptation to seize us except what's common to man. means no matter how bad we think our stuff is, it's not any worse than anyone else's. Scripture also tells us that he will show us the way out of temptation. He knows what it is because he found it again and again and again. And we should seek him when we're in temptation because he can show us the way out. This verse should cause us to worship it's simply meditating and thinking on the fact that Jesus was fully human. It should freak us out. That he was perfect with humanity on. More than anything, though, I think this verse, and we kind of talk about this with prayer, but it should push us more and more into communion with God. This isn't an abstract thought. It's not some pointless piece of theology. He is like us. He understands us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Better than anyone else knows us. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. It's happened. He did it. He invites us into a relationship with Him. We should take advantage of that. We should enjoy the relationship with him that he's created us for. That he bought us back into him. He is our brother. God is our father. And even though we don't feel like that all the time, it doesn't change the truth of it. He's never distant. We're distant. He's never unapproachable. We refuse to approach him. He is our loving Father who always welcomes us into his presence. And we should put ourselves in it. It's also, the gospel redefines our relationship to God because it overturns the curse of our sin and brings us back into our relationship with him. But it also redefines our relationship with one another. You guys aren't strangers. If we are together, sons and daughters of God, then we are brothers and sisters together. Right, when Scripture uses those words, it's not just a cute way to say, you know, we're part of the same church. It's a theological statement of who we are. And we should act like it. We should treat ourselves as family. Not just in this church, but in the church. God helps all those who trust in him, and that means that all those who trust in him have the same standing that we do before God. They are our brothers and sisters for me and theirs. Jesus, we thank you that you came here. You, in joyful obedience to your Father, took on 
flesh. And allow yourself to be made like us in every respect. You've suffered not just in your death, but in your life. To live the life that we couldn't live and die the death in our place. Jesus, I pray that you help us not to take lightly our redefined relationship to you. For we do not take lightly the fact that you have been made like us in every respect. You know what it's like to suffer in this broken world. I pray that by your grace and by the power of your spirit that you would draw us into this relationship just for us. That the theological reality that we see in Scripture would become actual reality. I pray now as we move to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a body. You just remind us you are merciful and gracious. Lord, your grace God, on us.